Let's bow for our opening prayer. Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God. You are greater than our comprehension, greater than our imagination. Yet through Jesus, we know the intimacy of your wonderful love. We are here to worship you this Sabbath afternoon with thanksgiving, with praise. We want you to speak to us through your word and through the small, still voice of your Holy Spirit that gives us direction and peace and hope in our hearts amid the storms. We know that you are God. We place our lives anew into your service. May our labor increase the goodness in your kingdom. May our labor bring hope and joy and peace and love where there is need. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that surrounds and indwells us. And we remember the words that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. One more time. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Years ago, and I know all of us will remember this commercial, this was a very clever commercial that was pushing the services of a Wall Street brokerage firm. It may even still be on the TV, I don't know. It, anyway, it showed a group of business people having lunch at a busy, busy restaurant. There was a lot of chatter, a lot of clinking of glasses. And then one man quietly asked another man something about investing. The other man's response was, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, suddenly there was silence. The busy restaurant came to a halt. You could hear a pin drop. All the other diners leaned into or towards the other table. They wanted to hear what that broker was going to say about the market. The, and the tagline, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. That is sort of the effect Jesus had during his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew wrote that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Other teachers could cite the words of other respected rabbis, but Jesus announced a new way to understand God and his kingdom. He had no need for approval from other teachers. He felt no, no compulsion to prove himself to the crowd he simply spoke the gospel truth. That is quite rock solid right there. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Another timeless commercial 
that uses the appeal of a narrow entrance goes like this. The few, the proud, the Marines. Not everyone can be a Marine. Maybe you've got what it takes. That is sort of the idea behind the narrow gate. The narrow gate idea is woven throughout Scripture. And during his sermon, Jesus described an eight-lane expressway heading towards destruction. He urged his followers to take the first available exit and then find the narrow pathway that leads to life. It would not be an easy route, he said, but it would be worth your effort. At first glance, it might seem like Jesus was simply referring to the sinful behavior of the masses. And we've heard, it, we've heard this put that, that way. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. You must be disciplined enough to follow God's rules. The few, the proud, the righteous. Hmm. Well, wait, 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 wait just a second. What did Jesus say during the previous two and a half chapters? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Don't put your religion on display. He said, forgive as you are forgiven. Do not judge. He didn't tell people to be more religious. The religious people embodied everything that he was against. He called people into a radically new, transparent relationship with the Father he called sinners to repent and trust in the grace, the grace that only he could offer in order to populate God's kingdom. Jesus knew that religion is a business, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with money. It's business where good deeds are exchanged for divine blessings. It's been called holy activity. Holy activity is when our activities are exchanged for good reputations. But that's not the way Jesus operated. His way was grace. He gives. We receive. We ask. God provides. We have no currency to pay with. And yet... We are blessed anyway. And that's very difficult for a lot of people to grasp. But it is the entry point into God's kingdom. Let's continue reading. In verses 15 and 16. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Oh my. What is a prophet anyway? A prophet is someone who delivers God's messages. A false prophet is someone who claims to bring a message from God, but that person is just making it up. And the Old Testament is full of pronouncements against false prophets. For instance, Jeremiah warned, do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They will fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, 
not from the mouth of the Lord? Which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or hear his word? Powerful words it was he wrote. And the New Testament echoes this caution from Jeremiah. Paul warned about future times when people would reject sound, sound doctrine. He wrote to Timothy, he said, instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. All we have to do is just take a whiff of the smorgasbord of spiritual teaching available today, and you'll realize that Paul's prediction has come true. Anything and everything you can imagine is out there. Is this what Jesus was talking about when he warned about false prophets in Matthew chapter 7? Perhaps it is in part. In part. But he was also referring to those who appear to be Christians, who try to fit in with Christians, but who are really like wolves. Wolves who destroy the faith of the flock. That's a fair description of the false teachers who plagued Paul as he carried the gospel around the Mediterranean. They said, it's not enough to trust in Jesus. You must follow the Jewish law too. That false doctrine damaged the faith of believers throughout the new the, the kingdom as it was being created in that first century. They said, it's not enough for you to trust in Jesus. You must follow the Jewish law. I think it's fair to say that many first century false prophets were legalists. They pushed their form of adherence to the law while denying the power of simple faith. What did Jesus say? By their fruit, you will recognize them. And like Jesus, John the Baptist also challenged the religious leaders to produce faith, fruit, fruit, in keeping with repentance. For John the Baptist, it wasn't just enough to show up the river and watch a baptism. John the Baptist saw the actions and attitudes of the religious leaders. He knew they weren't really serious. Paul had something to say about fruit. You can read all about that in, the, in Galatians chapter 5. You can read about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the characteristics that are reflected in the behavior of a real Jesus follower. These are the sort of fruit Jesus wants his followers to seek. Now, during the winter of 2009-2010, it was uncharacteristically cold here in Florida, the farmers had to pump a lot of water from the ground to save their crops. There were a lot of beautiful homes built not far from the farmlands. Many homeowners had saved their whole lives to buy their dream homes, and they had taken good care of their homes. Even so, the ground opened up. Many homes fell into sinkholes 
because the farmers pumped so much water out of the ground that sinkholes formed close to the farm fields. And if you can recall, which I, I, I recall, the TV reporters were swarming around the sinking homes to show the damage and to interview the owners who were all still in shock, no doubt. It's important to have a firm foundation. And Jesus used this very same image, a house crashing down, to teach his followers to base their lives on his words. Let's read these words of Jesus. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Do you know people who live their lives with no foundation? No foundation at all? People who don't believe in anything? Yeah, sometimes they're ruthless. Sometimes they're just blatantly immoral. They, they have no foundational values. They flutter here and there, influenced by whatever the public opinion is. James said that such a person is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. There are a lot of people like that in our country. And there are others who have a foundation for their lives, but that foundation isn't solid. Some of, some of them who have foundations, trust they put their trust in money. Others think life is all about having a good time. These are foundations of sand. When trouble comes, these lives crumble into sinkholes. We all have friends, we know families, maybe some of those in our own families whose lives have just gone into the sinkholes because their foundations were insecure. But the words of Jesus provide a rock-solid foundation for our lives. We can anchor our lives upon his teaching. Questions will arise that puzzle us, but we can seek answers from the master. Problems happen. They will shake us. But we have a solution. We can rest on Jesus' assurance that God loves us and that he will provide for our needs. The words of Jesus provide us with rock-solid truths. Will you stand on them or will you follow the traditions of men who regard their own delusions as greater than the word of God or the words of his son. One day, the Sadducees came to Jesus trying to discredit him with a difficult question. At least they thought it was difficult. The Sadducees were just as strict as the Pharisees in interpreting the law of Moses, except the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. The Sadducees did not believe in angels, 
the resurrection of the dead or in a future life, yet they were the ruling leaders in the Sanhedrin. The only part of the Old Testament, again, that they believed in was the Pentateuch, the first five books. The Sadducees came to Jesus with a far-fetched story about a man who died without any children. Now, according to Deuteronomy chapter 25, the brother of a deceased man was obliged to marry his brother's widow and have children for him. Well, the man had seven brothers, and each brother died after marrying the widow, and still there were no children. I know what you're thinking. In our society, we would suspect foul play. Well, the Sadducees said, since you believe in heaven, Jesus, whose wife will she be up yonder? The Michael translation. They really didn't want an answer. They were just hoping to show that the resurrection was a silly idea. How did Jesus respond? Jesus responded by saying, you are in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God. Matthew 29, verses 29 through 31. Jesus challenged those Sadducees. He criticized their ignorance of God's word and his power. First, Jesus asserted that the resurrection body would not be the same as a physical body. Then he quoted from Exodus, one of the books of Moses that the Sadducees believed in as authoritative. Their God identified himself to Moses by saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Verse 32. God didn't say I was their God. In the past tense, he said, I am their God. In the present tense, Jesus based a crucial point on that grammatical detail. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. These are the words of Jesus as he scolded those ignorant Sadducees. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had passed away centuries before. But by saying, I am their God, Jesus was saying that their existence was not over, but it would continue beyond the grave. The Sadducees must have quoted that verse hundreds of times. They were proud to say that they worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they had never understood this verse. The verse by itself proved what they had always disbelieved, the resurrection of the dead. In today's churches, many spiritual leaders say, worship God according to the dictates of your own conscience. Really? That is not what scripture says. To worship God in spirit and truth is to worship him how and when he says in his word. And we know his word is truth. Now, I'm going to digress here and go into a topic that I so rarely talk about from the pulpit. But I just felt compelled to do it this morning. See, this is why we, because we worship in spirit and truth, this is why we continue to keep the Sabbath. God himself set apart a day, the one and only day that identifies him as the creator. The Sabbath was set apart for a blessing, for our physical rest, 
for spiritual refreshing. The Bible contains God's instructions for life, and it authorizes only the seventh-day Sabbath as God's weekly holy day for joint assembly and worship. What authority do people have for Sunday? Religious leaders who teach the unbiblical change of God's Sabbath to Sunday are in error because they, like the Sadducees, do not know the scriptures. Despite all the scriptures in the whole Bible, in spite of direct commands from God, we still hear and read the Sabbath being called the Jewish Sabbath. Really? Most Christians have heard it so often that their minds just accept this untruth. And they argue by saying that the Sabbath covenant doesn't apply to them. The Sabbath doesn't apply to me. It was for the Jewish people. We've all heard that. Wrong. The Sabbath does apply to Gentiles. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man in Mark 2.27. That means for all mankind, after man was made, then the Sabbath was made. In fact, the Sabbath was the only thing that Adam saw being made by God. That was the final act of creation, was to create the Sabbath. This happened at the time of Adam. There were no Jewish people then. God does not have one standard for Jewish people and another for Gentiles. In fact, the Bible teaches there is no difference between the Jew and a Gentile. There are a number of verses, but they are similar to the one in Romans 3.22. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The truth is you cannot find the term Jewish Sabbath anywhere in the Bible. That name is divisive. It came from wolves in sheep's clothing, a.k.a. fake Christians as Christ himself labeled them. That term deceives by creating prejudice against the truth of God. It is contrary to God's word. It is not Bible language. Sadly, too many people have been prejudiced by this false belief and they don't comprehend the truth of the Sabbath as so clearly revealed in their own Bible. The Holy Spirit is the life-giving spirit that emanates from the very person of the Father and of Christ. The Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit teaches you not only love and the power of faith, but the Holy Spirit also is in your mind. I like to say that the, the Holy Spirit mates, and we get a portion of God's Holy Spirit that attaches to our human spirit. We don't even know what our human spirit is, but the Holy Spirit mates with our human spirit. Christ is in you, not in person, but in spirit. Jesus is the Savior who literally sends, sent his Holy, sends his Holy Spirit inside of us into our minds to clean us up and change what we are. Now, if Jesus Christ is in you, will he, in you, reject his holy day? <laughs> except, and accept a pagan day. 
<laughs> impossible. Jesus hasn't changed. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Jesus made the Sabbath. He rested on that very first Sabbath. It was he who gave the Sabbath to the Israelites. It is Jesus the Christ who kept the Sabbath, as was his custom. Jesus will always put his presence into the day he created. God's moral law is spiritual. We can read that in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. The fourth commandment of God's moral law commands us to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, not just any one day out of seven. There are no loopholes in Scripture. This is Almighty God we are dealing with here. Yes, God is love. He loves us. And he made his Sabbath for a purpose, to keep us in close fellowship. Okay, back to the Sadducees now. Got that out of me, out of my system. After Jesus challenged those Sadducees over their ignorance of Scripture, then a legal expert, this time a Pharisee, approached Jesus. The Pharisee asked this question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Scripture tells us that he asked Jesus this to test Jesus. It might seem like an innocent question. All Jesus had to do was pick one of the Ten Commandments. But the Pharisees, as we know, had concocted 613, well, come up with 613 commandments in the books of the law. Some were things you should do, some were things you shouldn't do. To the religious Jew, however, they were all equally important. How did Jesus respond? Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Masterfully, Jesus selected two verses from the books of Moses. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8. These verses had been in Scripture for hundreds of years. So Jesus was not explaining anything new to, this, to these Pharisees, these legalistic Jewish folk. He was simply setting priorities. Love for God, love for neighbor, and love for self are essential for a fulfilling life. In your life, love must have top priority. Love ties scripture together. Love ties the package all together. Without love, life falls apart and will shatter into little pieces. Without love, our faith clanks and wheezes and grinds to a halt. Love is the oil that makes Christianity work. When we love, we want to keep God's Sabbath. We want to know God's word. And we want to follow Jesus down the narrow path. We choose 
the way of Jesus, and this is rock-solid truth. Amen. Hallelujah.